We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number five. Ed, do you want to do your bit and read it out? Yep. Principle number five, diversity of lifestyles. All lifestyles are accepted within the constraint of not harming others or the biosphere. Right. So what we're talking about is really pluralism. And I I took the time to to look it up and found this definition that it's the recognition and affirmation of diversity within a political body, which is seen to permit the peaceful coexistence of different interests, convictions and lifestyles. And in particular, I think the different convictions, you know, this um, pluralism uh, about the truth, I think, is, is a really interesting part of this. Absolutely. And it's trying to encapsulate diversity in its broadest sense, because, I mean, as we wrote the book, multiple perspectives as part of systems thinking and getting to the best understanding and answer for a particular problem. Uh, Hmm. Well, there's some diversity being on the end of an economic system, which has essentially become a monoculture and with all its destructive capabilities that we see around us and trying to hoover up every single last corner of difference in the way in which people conduct their lives. And I think that that is, at least in part, uh, to do with trading. It's to do with creating, you know, it's, it's difficult for a company if they have several, uh, for example, currencies to deal with or several cultures to sell to. Whereas if everyone is absorbed into a kind of monoculture, for example, you know, everyone buying iPhones, I think is a good example of that. But it does create a sort of a monoculture around it. It creates a monoculture. And I, and I mean, if you take the whole tech world where you tend to end up in one monopoly or another, where mm. sort of, you know, Google gets hold of you or Apple gets hold of you, or in the past it was Microsoft, well, you end up with monopolies and what they do in practice is to screw the customer, put up their prices and the service declines. So there's another area where diversity is so essential. I mean, where this principle came from originally was this notion of resilience and building in resilience to systems and society. So biodiversity, which is absolutely vital, mm. absolutely vital 
that we maintain as much biodiversity as we can because one piece feeds and supports and enables another piece and you take a piece out of the jigsaw. But to take a very straightforward example, biodiversity in crops. So if you have a single strain of wheat and for whatever reason that strain of wheat gets attacked by a virus, then it's so it's mm. no longer able to produce the wheat we need. Well, you've put all your eggs in one basket, so that's nutty. And you think about, well, in the future, how people live it's probably pretty important that we maintain as much diversity there as possible because in the face of uh, climate emergency, biodiversity emergency and so on, we don't know which lifestyles are going to survive. That reminds me very much of the tribes' histories, both in um, Central Asia, in uh, Scandinavia and in North Africa that you've had over history, you've had tribes living the sort of the tough life in in the hills or in in the plains, and then occasionally venturing out and taking over the settled communities at the fringes that are on the trade networks. They have self-identified as being tough and have identified their victims historically as being soft by yeah. virtue of their being settled. And yeah. then there's this sort of Muslim theorist from the 10th or 11th century who theorized about how it was this softening of the tribal elites that led to the collapse of the societies yeah. periodically. Yeah, and the climate's getting tougher and tougher, and it's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. Food supplies, well, already are in many parts of the world disrupted. So what are you going to eat? And so you're sort of moving towards the notion that actually the people who are going to survive in the long run are the ones who can light fires, build shelters, grow crops, farm animals, and so on. And then you're saying, well, hang on, you know, if you take the indigenous peoples, as you were talking, mm. who are often looked upon as backward and uncivilized. But they, of course, have always maintained a strong connection with nature and with the natural world and a strong respect for it. Are actually these the people that are going to survive? Is this where we're going to have to look in the future coming out of our soft urban lives for how we're going to have to live? There's a new genre of literature called cli-fi, which is climate change fiction. And one particular recent book I was reading about has this group of people that it's following. They are being trained within the story to Mm. be hunter-gatherers because such has been the disruption to society that we're going to have to get back to being hunter-gatherers. Also, I think there's something of a sort of mythology around that as well, this sort of uh, slightly misty-eyed urban fantasy of how things are in the wilds. Yeah, there are always misty fantasies about everyone else. You know, uh, Germany does this better and, and, yeah, it does a lot of things better, but, you know, it's got some issues as well. Indigenous peoples, uh, on the one hand, fantastic. On the other hand, you might find some of the culture in those societies pretty awful in some respects in regard to some people. But then getting back to our society, you know, we have this neoliberal orthodoxy, which again is about freedom for, for large companies to more or less do whatever they want. 
And I think both London and Singapore would seem to be bastions of this way of thinking. But I wonder what, you know, realistically in the West, what other economic models we have. Well, we're going to come on next week to talk about the commons. So I won't dwell on that too much Mm. now. If you think about co-ops, I mean, just around here where people have set up small holdings to grow vegetables, small holdings for cattle and beef, which then sell locally and completely cut out the supermarkets and are completely separate. If you go back to forms of capitalism before the neoliberal model took hold, Boots, for example, Roundtree, these Mm. were Quaker-owned companies which were operating, yeah, they were operating to a profit because they needed to, but there was far more to what they did and how they worked. So, um, But that's really interesting. You know, they have this sort of, um, in the Roundtree model and the, the John Lewis model, you have the workers owning a part of the means of production, which is very, on the one hand, Marxist, but on the other hand, you know, the Quakers were, were kind of at the backbone of, of capitalism before neoliberalism. People collapse capitalism into the form of capitalism that we now have. Well, you know, there are 50 shades of capitalism and all sorts of different ways of funding markets and production. I think in New Zealand, for example, the majority of funding for business comes from bank lending and they don't have a large and virulent stock market bound mm-hmm. and seeking to hoover up every corner of the world into this monoculture, which is then governed by, in effect, by the global monetary system. Diversity applies in all sorts of ways. So it goes from a necessity. I mean, we have to do this. Meaning we have to, as a part of coping with the the climate climate emergency, we need to be accepting of other people. Well, we need to accept diversity in all things and accepting diversity of people. But also it's a value. I sit there and think, well, I might not like or agree with the way other people live but why should I want to make others live like me why put all that energy into changing someone else who's content living as they are who's a productive member of society and these ongoing low-level culture wars that we have often played out via newspapers so you know if you like the daily mail lifestyle versus the guardian lifestyle Mm. They're so draining and demeaning, obviously, of the individuals who are being attacked. But, but are they not, in a sense, two sides of the same culture? You know, the, 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 basically, the one, in a sense, can't exist without the other. Let's just be tolerant and accepting, because there is diversity of lifestyles, whether you like it or not, and there always will be, uh, thank goodness. But it goes beyond that, because you put all that energy into... Uh, trying to change someone else and trying to force your lifestyle onto other people, that's a hell of a lot of energy. Well, we need that energy and we need to work collectively and together in order to deal with the biosphere crisis. Mm. In part, what we're talking about is bracketing out differences because they're just bigger fish to fry. But in part, I'm slightly reminded of our biophysical world's 
episode number one, where we were talking about the sheer enjoyment of nature. And, and you know, I think one of the great things about, for example, living in London is the access to such an incredible diversity of well, cultures, but you you primarily experience it through food and music. Yeah, and isn't it fantastic? You know, I mean, it's the, the point of living. And, and I suppose but, that brings us on to another question that, you know, diversity of culture is also diversity of aspiration. I suppose going back to that point of the diversity of perspective or of truth. And again, I just wanted to bring in that point we landed on uh, a couple of episodes ago regarding um, leaders being right, being generally right. And the way that they are generally right is by seeking to disconfirm their assumptions and beliefs by eliciting a diversity of perspectives. To me, that seems to point to the intelligence side of this, that to go out and to experience people in their diversity is to be much more sure of the world. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's a classic system thinking, and this comes from Amazon, good leadership, equal, as you say, seek to disconfirm their beliefs by engaging a diversity of perspectives. Absolutely brilliant. So there we have multiple perspectives. So you're bringing in all sorts of different pieces of knowledge, pieces of understanding, pieces of information and views. So you're getting a much broader picture of what's really going on. But the second thing in that, disconfirm their beliefs, this is actually the scientific method in science, yeah, you prove something or develop a theory, but then the scientific method is to constantly then worry about it and seek to disconfirm it and seek mm. to prove it. So there you have leadership based on the scientific method and systems thinking. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful, I sit there and think, if our political leaders have spent time disconfirming their belief. It seems laughable now, doesn't it? But, yeah, uh... and, and you just think about what we've been through. I mean, Johnson is the classic one, standing up, trying to sound strong and certain and confident. You know, you have a roadmap to take us out of the lockdown. You know, if next week another variant comes up, you know, it says terribly, sorry, diversion. Well, yes. your, your roadmap is, is worthless. Now, if in order to get to the right answers, so good leaders are normally right, in order to get to the right answers, some humility, collecting those multiple perspectives, diverse perspectives, and then seeking to disconfirm the, the bright idea that you came up in the bath with last night, will enable you to get nearer to what needs to be done, nearer to dealing in reality and being adaptive in relation to it. Well, that's an interesting uh, perspective on the scientific method, because really the beginning of science, I think, was the admission of ignorance on the part of scientists. You know, previous yeah. to that, everybody studied whatever it was, you know, Aristotle or yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas or whatever, and then spouted it from a position of knowledge, mm. you know, with varying results. Whereas the Enlightenment was very much about this realisation that there's no certainty, so where do we start? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I suppose, you know, one of the other things that we're going to get on to, and we've sort of touched on it there, is diversity of truth, but I frame it in terms of diversity of feedback mm. um, and feedback forms. So, you know, here we've got um, a, a government 
policy. I mean, it could be on something as wide as welfare. It could be on something as relatively specific as prisons and do prisons work. There isn't a simple yes-no answer to welfare and prisons and how they perform in relation to different people. So we need diversity of feedback forms and we need diversity and understanding that actually uh, one mechanism in relation to a particular person in a particular set of circumstances may work, but exactly that same mechanism, but in relation to another person in a different set of circumstances, won't work. So getting into really nuanced diversity, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you see popping up now and again that, for example, Norway are doing something interesting with prison populations. They can reach a point where they go and live on an island in a closed community. But it just seems quite imaginative. And um, And what you're you're saying there, the thing you're raising, is diversity of solution, which, of course, is experimentation. You know, we're going to try this, we're going to try that, we're going to try the other. So rather than here is the policy... And now we're going to apply the policy, centralised, top-down, and everyone's going to do it. And then, you know, 10 years later, it's like, hmm, that's not really working. So diversity of solutions. Another angle, of course, is diversity of democracy. And the, I suppose if you raise it a step, then diversity in systems of governing. Mm. And I don't know how well-founded this is, but it certainly seemed to make sense to me, Jim Rutt, podcast um, oh yes where the point came up you know what caused the global pandemic from covid it's because of the chinese system of governing mm. which means that in effect you have an elective dictator the guy at the top of the chinese communist party and because he is so powerful and so authoritarian No one dared tell the person above them and then up to the Chinese leader. No one dared say, actually, we've got a major problem here. Um, We need to put our hands up. We need to be open about it. Mm. We need to tell the world. We need to get the World Health Organization and we need to deal with it. If that had happened, they would have gripped it six months earlier and maybe it wouldn't have become a global pandemic but well, that, that whole logic mirrors very precisely uh, what we talked about in the first series uh, with regards to target setting under Blair and subsequent government, well, under Thatcher and subsequent, subsequent governments, where yeah. the whole sort of value for money model, although it was probably quite well intentioned, ended up meaning that everybody was looking upwards to their bosses mm. rather than mm. downwards to the people they were supposedly mm. trying to support. Exactly so. And so this concept, this word diversity, it's like the French liberty, uh, equality. Legality, fraternity. So the fraternity uh, part of it. Perhaps we need an underlying set of values to go in our constitution, you know, the number one of which would be diversity in all things. That sort of segues quite nicely into something that was popping up in my mind, uh, which is when we were discussing military service and you were saying how the Swiss military service, one of the great benefits of it is offering vertical connections among the society that people make really good friends from people that they would never otherwise have met. 
which I think relates to this French revolution idea of liberty, equality and, and fraternity insofar as anything that breaks down the barriers between parts of society yes. and allows people to speak confidently and openly with each other yeah. will then feed into the information system in a more positive way. Exactly. And the Swiss, well, any mandatory military service means that, you know, you get people from all different stratas of society and it can be a great place to bond, but also it's a great place then to learn about those different stratas of society. Mm. And without that sort of vertical slicing, by and large, we all live in our little so yeah, it's going in the same direction. It's building an understanding of each other, an acceptance of each other. And then that means that you have the potential for unity when mm. you really need unity. And um, my goodness, we need unity now. So with regards to Unity. I mean, we're really talking about trying to get the broad church of humanity under a, a single, I'm mixing my metaphors here, under a single tent, to get this network of consensus on the climate crisis across completely and utterly diverse groups of people. Mm. And I suppose the one thing that strikes me is that there's a lot of so-called othering going on, not just across the left-right divide in politics, which seems so simplistic and somewhat out of date in a sense, Um, but also, you know, between countries, between cultures, in countries and so on. It seems to me that a big part of embracing diversity is meeting people and hearing them, listening to them and hearing them. Yes. Yes, and understanding them and just to take our own circumstances, you know, understanding why people voted Brexit rather than othering them and labelling them, but listening to what it was that drove them to such an apparently, in some cases, self-destructive thing to do. You know, they must have been desperate. Well, I think that, you know, something that struck me a lot is that, you know, everybody has their inner genius and by the same token everybody has their inner idiot and to give space to the genius and to be accepting of the idiot you know in yourself and in other people is well for me feels like a good policy in trying to understand other people you know? yeah I mean, and, and i think it's a human value as well galileo i think it was said he had never met a person who was so stupid that he didn't have something to learn from him or her. There's a point there about othering as well and accepting diversity. I often get people, um, gosh, who was the last? Oh, Corbyn might be a good example, you know. Mm. Oh, yeah, I don't like him, or indeed Johnson, or I don't like him, and therefore I'm not going to listen to what he says, even though what he's saying may have some value. Yeah. And My response to them is saying, well, you know, so what do you think of Einstein then? Did you like him? And, of course, most of them wouldn't have a clue as to whether they liked him or not. And I say, well, you know, if you didn't like him, uh, would you dismiss his uh, special and general theories of relativity? Well, it's bloody silly to take a view on what someone's saying by whether you do or don't like him. And you probably 
only have concluded that you do or don't like him through the medium of television and social media rather than actually having met him or her. And also, uh, perhaps you'd like to read out next week's principle, which, as you say, is the commons. Explicit democratic decisions, this is number six, explicit democratic decisions shall be made as to what is in and what is out of the commons. Well, I mean, it's obviously a massive point of debate, but let's keep that for next week. Okay. As to what the commons is. But yeah, no, very, very interesting uh, areas to, to delve into there. Again, Ed, thanks. We're there. Brilliant. Well, that was, uh, I, think, I think we did all right, Philip.